Lord Jesus, we ask you now, would you, would you help us to come as those eager to receive your word? Give us a sense that we are sitting at your feet, hearing the very words of God. Give us tender hearts, ready to be shaped by you, our tutor. Show us what it means to live as citizens in your kingdom. We pray this in your precious and powerful name. Amen. Once untrustworthy, always restricted. That's the motto of the Chinese government that uh, serves as the basis for a new social engineering program. They use the latest in technology, smartphone cameras, streetlight cameras, databases, scraping things off of social media and websites, all in the effort to figure out who is a good Chinese citizen and who's untrustworthy. They calculate something called a citizen score. And if your citizen score, citizen score is high, well, life goes on easily for you, doors open. If your citizen score is deemed low, well, you're in the same boat as nine million Chinese citizens at the moment who find their very life restricted. Now, it's a heavy-handed way for a government to go about trying to communicate what is expected of a citizen. Now, let's be clear. All countries and nations and kingdoms do this. Every kingdom has its expectations of its citizens. Think back with me to World War II. Very different country with very different expectations of its citizens. Uh, the United Kingdom at one point was getting bombed into what seemed like oblivion by Nazi Germany. It didn't seem like there was a lot of hope for British citizens at that moment, but the government wanted to communicate that citizens were to show that fabled British stiff, stiff upper lip. So they came up with a motto. It said, keep calm and carry on. Now imagine that as uh, bombs are dropping on your homes, you're being told by your government, you're supposed to keep calm and carry on. It's an expectation. It's being communicated that people of this country act a certain way. Every nation, every country, every kingdom has expectations for its citizens. The real question is, what sort of country is it? What sort of kingdom is it? And how in the world do its citizens live up to it? This morning, we're beginning a series that's going to take us through this whole summer, going through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I've entitled this series, Living in the Kingdom, because this series is really about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has brought with his coming to this earth. And it's about teaching people what it means to live as a citizen of that kingdom. At the front end of this series, we just need to understand there's a reason why we need to know what it is this kingdom's about and how it is to live in light of it. It's because this kingdom doesn't fit with the kingdoms of this world. Theologians and pastors have been calling it an upside-down kingdom for centuries for reasons. It's because it doesn't fit the expectations of what a kingdom's supposed to be like. And its citizens are very different from the citizens of any other kingdom. We're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount, and as we do, I hope 
you're going to find, as I have, as I've been studying it, that this section of Scripture uniquely will equip us to be the followers of Jesus, the citizens of heaven, that we won't naturally be on our own. Now, the only way this can happen is if we sit at the feet of Jesus and have him be our tutor to teach us about his kingdom. Now, I'm excited for this series. I've been preparing for, for weeks leading up to this, and this is our first uh, full-on sermon series. We're going to do live preaching all summer here at Castleton. And uh, as I've been preparing, I, I've come up with five reasons why I hope you are as excited as I am for this series through the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just do a l- brief introduction to, to why you should be excited for us to, ser- to go through this series of living in the kingdom. First, it's that the Sermon on the Mount is filled with Jesus. It's filled with Jesus. You, you can say it another way. If you love Jesus, you will love the Sermon on the Mount. And now, now I recognize, and it's very true, that all Scripture is in a sense the word of Christ. All of it was inspired by his Holy Spirit. All of it is given to his people. And so in a sense, we should always come to scripture expecting to to know more about Jesus and grow closer to him. And yet, let's just recognize, friends, that there are certain parts of the Bible that are just more spiritually refreshing and are just easier to feel close to Jesus as you read them. And the Sermon on the Mount's one of them. Uh, Maybe you have a Bible that puts some letters in red and some in black. Uh, That's the translator's attempt to show you which words were actually said by Jesus and which were uh, said by the author that's quoting him. And uh, if you flip through chapter 5 all the way to chapter 7, you'll see virtually all the words in this section come straight from Jesus' mouth. Even the most skeptical of academic scholars who hardly believe we can know anything that Jesus said acknowledge that the Sermon on the Mount shows for us the authentic Jesus. Some people rightfully say that the Sermon on the Mount is the core of Christianity. It shows us at its most basic level what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is a guy named Luke Timothy George. He wrote this. He said, In the history of Christian thought, indeed in the history of those observing Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered the epitome of the teaching of Jesus. And therefore, for many, the essence of Christianity. I'll say it this way. If you love Jesus, you're going to love the Sermon on the Mount. And you're going to find this a deeply encouraging and, I hope, transformative sermon series to be with us through. First, it's filled with Jesus. Second, it's filled with grace. One of the things that people have been noticing about the Sermon on the Mount, as far as back as they've been studying it, is the beauty and the grandeur of the virtues of which it talks about. People like Mahatma Gandhi have, even who don't believe that Jesus is who he claims he he is, uh, they still find great beauty in the Sermon on the Mount and, and wish for their lives to somehow reflect the teaching within it. But if we're careful students of this section of Scripture, we're going to find that it holds up ideals, it holds up expectations, that are so lofty, so high, that left to our own strength, none of us would ever be able to live up to them. And it's in that moment where it actually draws us back to the one teaching it to us, to Jesus. 
Again and again, we will see that God's standard is perfection. He says, comes right out and says it in chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What do you do with a statement like that except come to the, on your knees to Jesus and say, please give me grace because I don't live up to this. And then when we do that, we'll find something strange happen. We'll find ourselves living closer and closer to Jesus as citizens of heaven than we ever thought possible. This this section of scripture is filled with grace and that grace will have an effect on each of us. Third, the reason we should say the Sermon on the Mount is because it's fulfilled scripture. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, Christians struggle with what they should do with the Old Testament. Uh, Just uh, within the last month, a very prominent pastor uh, said that Christians need to unhitch themselves from the 39 books of the Old Testament. That, uh, that's for a, a different era. We now live uh, post-resurrection. We need to focus on what Jesus teaches. And yet, if you pay attention to what Jesus says, that's not an option. Uh, Jesus will tell us that he didn't come to do away with the Old Testament or to do away with God's law. He actually came to fulfill it. As we study this together, friends, it'll be as if Jesus gives us the key to open up the whole Bible so you can be a whole Bible Christian. It's filled with allusions and quotations and principles that will show us how to study our Bibles straight from the words of our Savior. Fourth, it'll help us to be fully devoted. One of the things that the Sermon on the Mount puts right in the crosshairs is a problem that has been with religious people as far back as people have been trying to worship God. It's religious hypocrisy. It's wanting to be seen as one thing when you actually are something else. The Sermon on the Mount pulls the mask off of our hearts and exposes us for what we are. It shows us that Being seen to be religious is not a substitute for the real thing. And that instead we have to seek our heavenly Father's approval over the approval of men. Jesus will get really practical about how this plays out in our lives and he'll show us how we can be whole people, fully devoted to God. Then finally, fifth, it shows us how to be fully decided. Like any good preacher, Jesus doesn't leave any neutral ground. As he starts wrapping up this sermon in chapter 7, he starts driving us to choose which path we're on. Either we will hear his words and put them into practice, or we'll abandon them to the peril of our own souls. This sermon has a clarifying effect of where you stand with Jesus will provide great encouragement to you if you're a follower of Jesus and a citizen of heaven. And if you're just checking out Christianity, well, friend, at least you'll understand what it is Jesus is actually claiming and telling you you need to do to follow him. This is a powerful section of scripture. It's one that I am confident will bear much fruit among us as a congregation. It's one that believers have been loving as far back as we've had it, over 2,000 years. I hope you are eager and expectant this morning as we start this journey together. We're going to begin by looking at uh, verses 1 through 6, which shows us this 
this different sort of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, this upside-down kingdom, means that we need a different kind of teacher to live as a different sort of citizen. We're going to move through it in two chunks. We're going to look at that different sort of teacher in verses 1 through 2, and then in verses 3 through 6, we're going to look at the different kind of citizens that he's making us into. And as we do, we'll see that this is truly not a kingdom of this world. It must be from only one place, from heaven. Look with me in verses 1 through 2 as we begin. This kingdom has a different kind of teacher. Verse 1 starts off by telling us that Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up to the mountain and it says he sat down and his disciples came near to him. Now, we need to know where we are in Matthew's gospel at this point. We're at one of those times where the winds are shifting spiritually. If you were a Jew 2,000 plus years ago, you have been in a state of waiting. Your people had been occupied for hundreds and hundreds of years. First, you had been carried off by the Babylonians into exile. Then some of you had come back, but not all of you. You were just a shadow of your former selves. Then they got conquered by the Greeks, and then the Greeks gave way to the Romans. And now, 300 plus years later, you are sitting there still under occupation. Making matters even worse, God's voice, the the way he used to speak through the prophets, had ceased. It had been over 300 years since a new word from the Lord had been sent So God's people are left waiting. When will we be free? When will we be achieving all that he's promised for his chosen nation? And how would we even know how to get there if God's not even talking to us? And then suddenly God speaks. First through John the Baptist. If you're with us last week, you saw how John the Baptist's ministry gave way to that of Jesus. He comes in the northern part of Israel's territory, the the darkest spiritual place in that region. And he starts preaching as someone come from God, saying the kingdom of heaven is here, so you need to repent. Well, his preaching ministry starts to get a bit of a buzz. People start gathering around him as he goes from village to village around the Sea of Galilee. So much so that we get here in chapter 5, And we see that Jesus now has a mass of people following him. A mass so big that he has to figure out a way to address them all. So he gets his inner circle of disciples, the 12 and the hangers-on there, and he brings them up the mountain with him. And then he climbs to the top of the mountain, and he sits down. Verse 2 says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, if we're not careful, we'll skip over an important thing that Matthew's doing here. He tells us that Jesus went up to the top of this mountain or ridge area, and he sat down. Then it says strangely, he he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, I I don't know about you, but if if you, you tell me that someone taught somebody, I'm assuming there are words coming out of their mouth, right? Why would he say that he opened his mouth like that? I'm convinced what Matthew's doing is he's building attention here. He wants this sense of expectation of what is this guy going to say? If you were a faithful Jew 2,000 years ago and you saw someone walk up on a mountain and sit down, 
immediately your mind would go to another man who spoke from God, a man named Moses. Jewish tradition in that day said that Moses, after he climbed Mount Sinai, sat on the top of the mountain and received those very words from God. So Jesus climbs to a top of a mountain of sorts. He sits down and he opens his mouth and the implication is, whatever he's about to say, we better listen. I think Jesus is fulfilling Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. God speaking to Moses says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Friends, you see what's happening here? A man is coming speaking from God. To ignore his words is to ignore God himself. Look what happens. Fast forward with me to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. You can see how this anticipation gets fulfilled in the reaction that people have to this sermon he preached. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Friends, whatever we learn as we study the Sermon on the Mount, whatever you think of Jesus this morning, understand what he is claiming for himself. He is claiming to speak God's very words. I hope this summer as you come to church on Sunday or as if you study this passage on your own or in your small groups, you come expecting to hear God's very words to you. Now there's ways you can communicate and set yourself up for that to work out as a reality. One of the ways is coming on Sunday mornings rested enough that you can actually listen to the sermon. One of the ways is what are you, asking yourself, what are you actually expecting to get out of it? You know, sometimes we, we listen to sermons and we, we come to church, and uh, afterward, the things we talk about reveal what we're most interested in. Maybe it's a particular thing that the young preacher said, or, or maybe it's someone, something that one of your good friends did for the umpteenth time that you just can't believe, or maybe it's a song that you wish that they hadn't sung. Any number of valid observations. And yet, if we are gathering together around God's very word, if we're really sitting at the feet of Jesus to be tutored by him, friends, what are we communicating when we focus on everything else except the word that God has spoken to us? Maybe this afternoon at lunch, you pick out one little golden nugget from this glorious text. And before you talk about any of the other things that happen, as important as they are, you talk about what Jesus said. Let's come with that sort of an attitude, an expectation that God will speak to us through this. That we're actually gathering at Jesus' feet, like his disciples and like the crowd. And that when we hear his words, they'll actually change us. 
It's a different sort of kingdom. So it needs a different sort of teacher to teach us, one that we better listen to. But what will that teaching do within us? Well, that's what verses 3 through 6 show us. See, this is a different sort of kingdom with a different sort of teacher because this is a kingdom that has a different sort of citizens. And 3 through 6, we start looking at essentially attributes of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this section is really part of verse 3 all the way down to verse 12. Uh, that's commonly called the Beatitudes. Uh, some preachers have been known to call it the beautiful attitudes, and uh, there, there's something good to that. Uh, as you read through them, my guess is you will find yourself challenged. Uh, if you could live up to everything said in these verses perfectly, you would be a very different person this morning. And yet these Beatitudes really need to be understood in the context of the whole sermon. They are rungs on a ladder, They are the first steps that citizens of the kingdom of heaven take, and as such, they are attributes of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There are things that should be true of all Christians, and increasingly true of them until the day the kingdom of heaven is here in its fullness when Jesus returns. You could see the the main point of them, or the main theme, um, in verses 3 and 10. Um, Look with me at the second half of each of those. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then if you go down to verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Then here it is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See that both the beginning and the end of the section, the kingdom of heaven is promised. That's just a a way, an ancient Hebrew way of showing uh, that when you bookend something like that, you have a top and a tail that are the same. It's a way of saying everything bracketed in between is on this subject. In other words, this is about how people come to be inheritors of, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the formula that's used in each of these lines, these beatitudes, is, is relatively simple. There's three parts to it. There's, there's a declaration of being blessed. Blessed are thee. Then there's the group of people that are declared ble- blessed. That's the second part, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, etc. And then finally, there's the reason that they're blessed. Uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be comforted. Now, right in the front end, we have to deal with a number of hurdles we have to go, get over just because of our modern context and how we under, hear some of these words. Right at the beginning, that word blessed could not be more easy to misunderstand than it is today. Uh, if you're on social media, maybe you have seen people use a hashtag blessed. Um, and most of the time, it's not exactly done in a subtle way. Uh, hashtag blessed was named the most uh, disgusting social trend back a couple years ago by one magazine I found. And uh, the idea with it is you, you find something going really well in your life. You know, you, you take your brand new, newly waxed nice ride or, or the new set of threads you're wearing or uh, a picture of a beautiful sunrise. And then you throw up a hashtag blessed to let everyone know just how great God's being to you in that moment, right? Um, and really, it's a very thinly veiled way of saying wow, aren't I doing pretty well? God must be blessing me. That's, that's the basic message of it. The way that the Bible uses blessing, 
And the way particularly the Sermon on the Mount will use it could not be more different. This is not saying my life is comfortable, my life is pleasant, everything is easy about my life. As we go down the list of things that Jesus declares, categories of people blessed, you'll see they could not be further from that. On this list we have people who are poor in spirit, people who mourn, Down in verse 10, people who are persecuted. You don't see a lot of people throwing up hashtag blessed if they're being persecuted somewhere like a rock, do you? Now what Jesus is saying here, as the Bible uses blessing, it refers to the true state of someone as God looks down at them. It's saying on this person, God's smile shines. See, this is one of the most upside-down parts of the kingdom of heaven. The people we would expect are doing well are not the people that God's smile is upon. Jesus redefines blessing for us, and as we go through these Beatitudes, we'll see that ourselves. We'll also see that there's always a, a reason attached why these people are blessed. That reason shows us the great promises of God, the grace that finds us in the midst of hard, hard times. So so that's the formula, three parts. Declaration of blessing, the category of person, and then the reason. So we're going to go through the four first of these together, and we'll see this kingdom has a different sort of citizen. Let's look in verse 3 at the first of these, where we'll see neediness. Neediness. Verse 3 tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are many people that believe that if God is smiling upon you, then life must go easily. You you always get the good parking spot. You get a first-class airline ticket. And yet, as Jesus defines blessing in this verse, he uses the language of economic poverty. Now, he's using it as a metaphor. He clarifies it's spiritual, poor in spirit. But the images of someone who's got nothing, that's penniless. Jesus says, far from the expectation of the day where the people who are doing the best have the finest seats in the synagogues. They pray long prayers in front of everyone for everyone to see. Far instead of thinking that the person who seems to have it all together is the one who is truly blessed. Jesus says, the person who declares spiritual bankruptcy is the true citizen of heaven. I remember being on a college campus and there was an evangelist that was sharing the gospel. And uh, he was talking about how God had done something that we could never do. How we have this infinite debt before God. That our sins are, are so bad that no amount of good works could ever work them off. And so God had done the, the only thing that a loving God could do. He sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins so we could have a clean slate. And he was preaching this, and afterward he had a Q&A time. And uh, a girl stood up, and uh, you could just tell she was indignant. And she said, uh, I just want to ask you something about what you said. Uh, you said that I need Jesus to pay for my sins. Well, I, I just don't see any reason for that. I can pay for my own sins, thank you very much. Now, in that moment, 
And I don't know the state of that woman's heart or what happened to her after. But in that moment, she revealed what so many of us really think about ourselves. We think that if we try hard enough, that if we follow a code well enough, that if we search out our hearts and are true to ourselves, if we just inch by inch improve little by little, that one day we will be acceptable to God. Let's be frank, that's the, the MO of virtually every religion in this world outside of Christianity. That you can work your way toward God through some manner of religious activity or penance or sacrifice. And yet the good news of Jesus is completely opposite of that. It's that our only hope is to declare utter bankruptcy before a holy God, that God has already told us our righteousness before him is like filthy rags, that there are none of us who are righteous, and that if God gave us what we deserved, it would only be our punishment and eternal separation from him. Jesus here tells us the only way into the kingdom of heaven is declaring spiritual bankruptcy. The second Second beatitude is tightly connected to it. Verse 4 shows us brokenness. This time the image changes. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now instead of using economic categories, he's using that of grief. Imagine someone at a funeral. Someone with tears streaming down their eyes. Someone who is obviously broken. Jesus is declaring that person blessed. Now again, he's using spiritual categories. He's not saying just any grief in this life is a blessing. What he's saying is that those who understand just how penniless spiritually they really are, those who understand just how bad their sins truly are before the holy judge of the universe, those who feel deep in their heart and their soul the weight of it and are broken by it, He says, those are the ones that will find comfort. We sang a song earlier that said these words. It said, uh, no list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. The great evangelist George Whitfield told the story of one time where he was out doing his itinerant preaching ministry, and he came across a group of coal miners that had just come out of their mine. Uh, that was hard work, dangerous work, and they were covered head to toe in soot, just as grimy and dirty of a job as you could find. Whitfield began preaching on these, this very text about spiritual bankruptcy and being broken over your sin. And he exclaimed to them, turn to Christ and find comfort for your sins. And something amazing happened. He, he described, he said he broke through the ice. And the way he knew it is because on their faces he could see the tears washing rivers through the dirt. 200 people came to Christ on that day. Friend, you know that the beginning of the comfort that God brings you starts with the dark night of grief over your sin. Maybe you're here this morning 
And as you let your mind play back, you have some real things that you know you have done wrong. Maybe things you've never told anyone about. But you know God sees them. Friend, the good news for you here is comfort is available. If you will bring these many, these and all the other sins in your life before Jesus, and you cry out to him, I am a sinner through and through. Clothe me in your righteousness. Friend, the good news is Jesus is eager to, to no longer condemn you as one who is an enemy of God, but to cover your sins, to give you unlimited forgiveness before God, and to call you a brother, a sister, and an heir of the kingdom. Friend, you can have that today. All you've got to do is come to Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, I'll be here after the service. You can come ask me about it. Maybe if you came with a friend, you can ask them. Friend, don't go through this life bearing this weight, this brokenness in your heart and your soul. The only comfort in this life is Jesus dealing with your sin. Those first two Beatitudes show us the first rungs of the kingdom declaring spiritual bankruptcy, brokenness over our sin. The second two rungs, verses four, uh, 5 and 6, show us what that actually does in our heart, how that changes us into different sort of people. In verse 5 we see, it produces within us gentleness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we live in a day and age where people prize strength. Uh, you look at the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, they're well-articulate, beautiful people. Uh, they're the type of sharks that you need in order to survive in these sort of waters, right? We, we value statements like, fortune favors the bold, or grab the bull by the horns, right? Make something of yourself. In that sort of a culture, the idea of meekness really gets a bad rap. People think of meekness as weakness. It's a, you're the doormat in the room that everyone steps on. That's not the idea that Jesus has here, though. When he talks about meekness, what he's talking about is someone who has been so radically transformed by the grace of God, by that forgiveness of sins and the comfort that Christ brings to our souls, that they actually start to treat other people differently. They become gentle. It's what happens when you open up in your small group and you tell someone about your deepest, darkest secret, something that you never wanted anyone to find out about. And instead of them condemning you, instead they put their arm around you and they gently welcome you as one that belongs here. This is the part of a believer's heart that responds when someone sins against them, instead of holding their feet against the fire so they feel every bit of pain as much as you do, instead you remember what it is that God did for you, how he put up with your many, many sins and treated you gently in your brokenness. And so instead, you cover that sin over with love. This is the sort of gentleness that only comes from people that have been treated gently by Jesus. And what are we worried about anyway? 
I mean, even if people do treat us as a doormat, even if you miss out on that promotion because you refuse to step on someone's neck, even if you end up with friends that are a little needier than you would like, friend, look at the promise that Jesus gives you there at the end of that verse. For they shall inherit the earth. All the stuff that you might lose out on, do you know this place, every bit of it will be remade one day when Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom. And friend, if you are a citizen of heaven, you're going to inherit all of it. What are you holding on to? What are you afraid of losing if you are with Jesus? All the treasures of heaven are yours. You can see this same effect happen on us. When it comes to verse 6, the longing it produces within us. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This time he shows us the desires that start to show up in this remade new heart that Jesus puts within us. He uses the image of food and drink. Now, living in the West, few of us really have experienced true hunger and thirst, the, the sort of life-threatening hunger and thirst. I'm told by those who have experienced it that it, it's the type of desire that's so strong, so compelling, that you really have trouble thinking about anything else. That growl in your stomach when you miss lunch is nothing compared to that bottomless chasm pain that people describe who are starving to death. Jesus uses this image to describe how his citizens of heaven will long to see God's rule and reign in themselves and the world around them. I read a book about a guy named Steve Callahan. Uh, he holds the record for having survived in a life raft the longest solo. Uh, he was out sailing in the middle of the ocean and his uh, boat, something happened to it, he doesn't know, in the middle of the night, he barely got into a life raft. And he ended up having to survive on his own for over 60 days. Along the way, he drank what rainwater he could get. He ate raw fish. Uh, at one point, he got so desperate for iron, he started eating pieces of his fishing tackle. Um, and when he finally uh, sailed across the ocean, essentially, and got uh, found by some, some islanders, um, he described what it was like to have food again. He said it was like heaven. <laughs> Jesus tells us that's what it is for citizens of heaven to see God's rule and reign in their lives and the world around them. Oh, don't you get sick of living in this world sometimes? Another school shooting? Another family that abuses their kids? Another person in authority who uses it for their own gain. Another war. Another natural disaster. It, it just gets tiring after a while. Don't you long for the day when all that will be over and instead you'll see God's perfect reign over everything? It, right now you see it in little crumbs, in little sips. You, you see it as someone turns to Christ and changes their life. You see it as a missionary at great cost to themselves goes and loves somebody out of the gutter into a stable place. But as you see it, you, you realize you have an appetite for it. 
Friend, the good news is one day that appetite will be satisfied. They won't just be crumbs. They won't just be little sips. It'll be a feast. It'll be as much as you can drink. Because one day this King Jesus is returning. And when he does all of the longings of the hearts of his citizens that that long to see God's rule and reign in every corner of their lives, it will be so. Friend, it is frustrating right now to live in this world. I know it. I feel it just like everyone else. But don't lose heart. We are citizens of the kingdom that's not of this world, but that's breaking into this world and one day we'll be here fully. That should give us reason to hope as we walk this earth, even with a little growl and a little parch in our, thir- in our throat. It's a different sort of kingdom. That's why it has a different sort of teacher. And he's turning us into different sort of citizens. There's a, a place that's a very different sort of land, a, di- a different sort of country, um, I'm from the southern part of Florida, but if you keep going south, you'll get to a place called the Florida Keys. It's really a set of islands that stretch off into Florida, and they have their own set of cultural norms that are, well, it'd be kind to call them different. <laughs> um, if you've ever been to somewhere like Key West, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, very laid back. Um, chickens roam the earth down there. They, they go freely in and out of buildings. Uh, lots of people go there to vacation. Uh, lots of people who don't have jobs like to just live on the beach and just kind of be there. Um, it's just, it's not like anywhere else in America, right? Well, um, Key West, the whole Keys region really, uh, did something that only Key West could pull off. They established something in 1982 called the Conch Nation. Um, it was really over a traffic dispute. They didn't like how some policemen were kind of stopping cars on the only way in and out of this island chain. So they decided to secede from the Union. Um, and uh, they, they, uh, they, they got really serious about it. And, and by really serious about it, their first government appointment was the Minister of Underwater Affairs. Um, their uh, rebellion lasted for exactly one mil- minute. Uh, their, their mayor broke a loaf of bread over the head of a guy dressed up like an American soldier and then promptly walked into the closest uh, army station and surrendered himself. Um, it was thoroughly tongue-in-cheek. But to this day, they use this line. They say, we seceded where others failed. Okay? <laughs> it's a different sort of nation, Okay? <laughs> Nowhere's quite like Key West. The people in Key West, uh, I, I don't recommend trying to live like them, but they're their own unique kind of citizens. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. It's a different sort of kingdom because it's got a different sort of king, a teacher who actually transforms us to be a different sort of citizens living in this earth for him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, the thought of your kingdom coming, of your will being done on this earth as it is in heaven, it makes the stomach of our souls start to growl just thinking about it. 
would you grant us our desire? Give us in greater and greater degree conformity to that great standard you've laid before us in this, this text. Make us into citizens of heaven. Help us to hear your word and put it into practice. To be broken over our sins. And to be changed by the grace we experience from you. Do this all in your powerful name. Amen.